it was a Friday afternoon and, and everyone's paycheck was about to be paid. So that was the day people's paychecks were due. And I was getting closer to new investors, but I hadn't finalized the deal. And I literally didn't know what was going to happen that day, if we were going to save the company or lose it. And I actually had a, 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 a meeting with the whole company scheduled previously for that day. And I honestly prepared two speeches that morning. One, what would I say if we saved the company? Second one, what would I say if we lost it? Mm-hmm. And I'm not exaggerating, 15 minutes before everybody's paycheck bounced and they padlocked our doors and our dreams were shattered, uh, I got a wire transfer from the new investor and I walked into that room and exhausted and sweating and, and told them that we'd saved the company. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, first of all, before we get into today's guest and an introduction of him, I just want to thank you for being a listener. You know, when you do a podcast, you actually don't know who is out there, who's listening, who's making comments. And the other day, somebody um, emailed me, says, Ken, I've been listening to the show now for several months and just really appreciate what you're doing. And you know what? It was just meaningful because you don't know as a host exactly what is touching your heart, how it's changing you, how it's helping you. So I just wanted to thank you, and I want to thank you in advance for you sharing it, letting other people know, or leaving a positive comment on whatever platform you're on. It all helps for us to sort of grow the message. And our intent here really at Sense of Success is who could we interview and then hopefully ask questions that help you to go to the next level individually, professionally, or as a business or business owner or leader. And so again, that's what our goal is. And in that vein, you know, our business um, as a company is producing, you know, psychological tools and assessments, but really learning solutions that help you to go to the next level. And so I just want to emphasize that, you know, with this, these 10 assessments that lead into 12 reports, is we want to develop the whole person. It's not just one thing, it's all of them. And you know, our personal style indicator now really uh, ranked the number one personality tool on the planet by participants, has its own e-course, uh, which is why aren't you more like me? And then we also have another assessment, the values preference indicator, which is now an e-course as well. So my encouragement is if you haven't taken those or participated in those, or if you have team members that need to grow, uh, that these are great uh, starting points. So our guest today is uh, Josh Linkner. And Josh is an individual who grew several companies. The cumulative value of the companies that he sold was over $200 million. He started the first company when he was 20 years of age. He's written several books. A couple of them are New York Times bestsellers, Disciplined Dreaming, Road to Reinvention, Hacking Innovation. And now what Josh does is he is a keynote presenter for many organizations. He just flat out, you know, is one of the top uh, keynote presenters in the globe or on the globe right now. Uh, just speaking about innovation and creativity. And one of the things, my encouragement that we really touch on in the interview is that every single person listening to this can benefit from creativity or innovation. It's not just for this person in this R&D lab. It's for all of us in our lives about how we reinvent ourselves. So uh, Josh is very articulate and he's energizing. So I'm just very honored and pleased to have him on the show. So thank you for listening. And here's our guest, Josh Linkner. 
Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, we are so privileged with our guest today who, you know, grew five companies, sold them for nearly around $200 million. I learned about our guest today through one of my colleagues, Jane, who talks about other successful speakers and trainers, and now he's one of the top keynote presenters globally, just flat out busy. Also a New York Times bestseller. So what else could this person have done? So welcome to the show, Josh Linkner. Josh, thanks for uh, joining us. Well, thank you. What a privilege to be with you today. Well, uh, Josh, I mean, our audience, the Secrets of Success audience, we always like to hear people's stories about where you came from and sort of your journey to get where you are so that we can encourage others, but also learn about you. So just give us a little bit about your background, right from when, you know, where you grew up and just some of the elements that are going on in your earlier life. Sure. Uh, so I, I'm a hardcore Detroit guy, go Motown. Uh, I was born in the city of Detroit, not the suburbs, and uh, I've always wanted to stay and be part of the solution. I've had the chance to leave many times. Uh, but I grew up in Detroit. I actually started my career as a jazz musician. I, I've been playing, I'm 49 now, I've been playing for over 40 years. And I, uh, music was a big part of my life growing up. I, I put myself through college playing music. In fact, I started playing gigs when I was in my teens in, in, in inner city Detroit, which is <laughs> not something I'd want my teens to do, but nonetheless, I, mm. I did. And um, actually, music was a real driving force for, for entrepreneurship and, and other pursuits. I ended up starting my first company at age 20. By the way, I didn't know what I was doing. I'd never taken a business course. But in jazz music, we improvised. And I said, oh, well, maybe I could improvise this business thing. So I started a small tech company. I took a year off of school and built it up and ended up selling it. And now, I, I kind of had the entrepreneurial so love. So I know you're extremely articulate and fast. So as the host, I'll interrupt you a little bit. Is what was the tech company? What was its focus? What did you develop? Well, this was 1990. And at the time, you couldn't just go buy a discount computer yeah, like at Best Buy. So I did what really what Michael Dell did, uh, although I didn't even know who that was at the time. But uh, I started a, uh, mail ordering individual computer components, assembling them in my college apartment, which ultimately became a little retail environment, and sold them for, for a discount on the campus. And so I, I ended up uh, doing okay. You know, I, I made a ton of mistakes, by the way. I screwed up everything that could be screwed up. Nonetheless, we were able to, to muscle it out and had it an okay outcome. I mean, I, I didn't become Michael Bell from this, but I learned a lot. I learned mm. a lot and, and fell in love with the process of creating and building and uh, you know, if I were really fast forward, that's what I've been doing ever since. When you think about your uh, home life, what did your parents do? Well, so my parents were divorced when I was very young, and, uh, and they both passed away. I don't mean to speak negatively, but, but um, they were kind of into their own thing. And, and so I, I was, people joke around that I was sort of an adult at age four. And while I, I wouldn't necessarily wish that on, on other kids um, because I got lost in the shuffle a bit, uh, it taught me to be pretty independent and resilient and tenacious. And I realized that if there was anything I wanted in life, I had to go figure it out myself. And so uh, to a degree, it was actually a real gift uh, that I had so much independence and uh, I had to be self-reliant very early. Well, when you think about that, Josh, and I know you, you speak about innovation and creativity now to corporate audiences around the world, many individuals in your situation at that age would have not been resilient and not come through and basically uh, suffered through that, not to say that you didn't have that. What was the difference for you, even at that young age, that helped propel you to overcome some of these difficulties? My, my paternal grandmother, who, who I 
still to this day just holding such high regard. Of course, she's passed, you know, several decades ago. But uh, she she always would tell me that I could do it, like that I was I could control my own destiny. And it was almost like she was my own little mini motivational speaker. Now that I think about it, I've never said that before. But she used mm. to tell me that she's like, hey, in any setting you're in, whether it's in school or if you're eventually in business, someone has to be the best. Why not you? And and that really stuck with me that it sort of was this empowering message that, you know, based on my own hustle and grit and hard work that I could accomplish stuff. And I think that honestly was the biggest driving force was this incredible light of a woman. Mm. Well, when you think about the heart of grandparents, uh, it just seems to be different than parents. I don't know the second time round, but they just, it's not the vested interest. It's just, I want to be able to serve this child and love on this child and accept them and grow. So uh, thank you for sharing that, Josh. And I think the encouragement to the audience is that no matter how sort of innocuous it appears, is that people make a difference, especially when they're encouraging others. And that's what your grandmother did for you. Isn't that so true? So something that, that she said to me now 40 plus years ago or whatever, like that still sits with me almost on a daily basis, which is amazing the impact that we all have on, on sometimes even in an unknown way. Uh, and so if you are out in the world and you, you say something really positive and uplifting, that can have a ripple effect that could span decades. On the other hand, if you say something really destructive, that can also have a ripple effect. So I think it's so important, it's such an, uh, a responsibility that we have to, to think about the downstream implications of, of how we impact others. Mm. And, and today with social media, everybody seems to share their opinion. And I think sometimes people are not as strategic and guarded with their comments as they uh, need or should be. Yeah, I think about it. A lot of it's intent. Like you could still be authentic and open hearted and vulnerable. But it, it, to me, it's about, you know, are you saying something that's constructive or destructive? And, and I think perhaps the world needs a little bit less uh, destructive comments. Out there. Uh, agreed. Agreed. So, Josh, you finished. Thank you for that. You finished um, college. Uh, what did you take in college, by the way? Well, I first went to the Berkeley School of Music in Boston and uh, studied jazz music. I eventually uh, moved to Florida and graduated from the University of Florida with a degree in advertising because I always loved the creative process, uh, but a minor in business. I'm sorry, a minor in music. And, uh, and, and, and almost immediately after graduation, I started another company doing a similar kind of thing. That actually only lasted about 11 months. Because what happened is I was kind of good at selling. So I ended up getting a number of clients and then a large supplier of mine ended up buying my business. So now I was 24 and had sold two companies. Uh, again, by the way, these, that sounds very glamorous. It was not that glamorous. Like these were not giant exits. I didn't buy a yacht or a Ferrari or anything. But, but again, I learned a lot. Uh, mm -hmm. So I started a third company in uh, 2000, no, sorry, 1995. And this was right when the internet was coming on board. And I, I started a, an internet development company. And it was so funny. I would call people up and say, hey, have you ever heard of the internet? And they're like, no, what's that? I said, you know, I could put your business on the internet. And, and I remember distinctly saying, you know, there's 10 million people on, around the world on the internet now. And of course, now there's, you know, several billion. Um, but I, I was lucky because it was very early on. This, this incredible new medium was, un, was unfolding. Uh, so I built that company up and sold it in 1999 to a public company. Now, and, Josh, uh, that was our, a real learning experience. Yeah, I think you, uh, you're just moving through quickly on sort of some things that you've done where here you are, you, are you a programmer? Not a programmer, correct? I'm not a programmer. You know, there's different types of CEOs and even in tech companies. I'm more on the sales and marketing and design side of things. I'm that artsy kind of guy. And I was more also on the business side, uh, much more than the hardcore tech side. So I actually ended up hiring uh, a number of you know, more technical developers. I knew enough to be dangerous, but certainly wasn't a coder. Mm. And 
you know, most people, and I'm old enough as well, Josh, that, you know, our company was just getting on the internet and I was joking with people who were, oddly enough, Josh, I commuted from the West Coast to Detroit for a year uh, to work with Chrysler as their senior consultant because we didn't have email. <laughs> and wow. even if you had an email, then nobody else did. So who were you going to send it to? So that was a ninety. That was a ninety-five. So I think that's kind of funny. So with with that, here you are. You are now starting to uh, build this company to help other people to kind of get online and start building their own sort of presence there. What what was driving you to do it? How did you even see this opportunity? Like, where did this come from? Well, it really didn't take a genius at that time. When I saw the internet, and I saw that you can look ahead and say, well, today, and I remember at the time there were only two percent of companies that even had a website. And I said, it's not going to take that long before everybody needs a website. But one thing that I think is instructive for, for our listeners is that at that time, if I did market research, what's the opportunity to build websites? That would have been uh, rear view mirror looking research, and I would have said zero, like there's no market for it. But I always try to look forward and say, okay, where are things headed? And in this case, again, it didn't take that much of a genius to realize that pretty soon everyone would need a website. It was exciting for me because it was the intersection of a number of different passions of mine. It was part tech. And I was kind of a little tech geek. I used to have an Atari 800 back in the day, and I, 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 I used to fiddle around with technology all my life. Um, it was part marketing and advertising and creativity, which was my degree and, of course, my passion for music. Uh, and then it was also part business, which I, I started to grow fond of. So the intersection of these three things, I said, oh, man, I, I found a home. And, um, yeah, that's what happened. Mm. So uh, where did this company of building sites for others go then? So I grew to about uh, maybe 40 people at the time. Uh, you know, we, we were profitable and growing and ended up landing some major clients. In fact, Chrysler, you mentioned, was one of our key clients. We built a number of the Chrysler websites on that, among other large things. We, we did Ford's first e-commerce website, built uh, Whirlpool's website. Uh, anyway, so we, at that time, the Internet bubble was very frothy, and I sold it to a public firm in New York that was doing a roll-up of similar type web development companies. Wow. Now, you were building these and selling them. And many entrepreneurs hang on to their businesses and kind of it's their purpose. Uh, how is it that you were able to build and sell? What's, what's driving that, Josh? Well, I, I did want to make sure that I was building a company that could, could transcend me as a person. So that really wasn't about me as the CEO. It was about the company. It was, was, you know, it, it, it was bigger than just me. And uh, you know, I did want to engineer it such that selling it would be an option. That being said, I was you know, passionate about the, the, the business. It wasn't like I you know, started something and couldn't wait to get rid of it. Um, but at that time, the, the opportunity was so strong. It was the internet uh, bubble, and it was exciting. And so there was a, an opportunity for this merger that we decided to pursue. Um, that being said, it didn't work out so well. So a quick story, uh, I sold it primarily for stock. I got some cash, thankfully, but I, primarily for stock. So, and, and, and full disclosure, it was you know, single-digit millions uh, uh, total transaction value. Um, but the stock that I had was restricted stock. In other words, I was unable to sell it for 18 months. Well, mm. my timing was good selling it, but bad with this 18-month thing because I saw the value of my stock skyrocket, but I couldn't sell it. So it grew to like, excuse me, like 50 plus million dollars. I remember one time I went to get a haircut, like super clips, by the way, and, and I walked out of my $6 haircut and on paper, I was a million dollars richer. So now this sounds very good, but as the old saying goes, what, what goes up must come down. So in the same euphoric way that I saw this, this stock rise, and by the way, I'm lucky I didn't do anything stupid at this time, um, it also came crashing down. And so it ended up to be certainly fine, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity, and I did fine economically, but it was nowhere near what, what it could have been had I structured that deal differently. 
So I ended up learning a lot from that too, both what to do and what not to do when you sell a company. Mm. Well, thank you for Josh. And you know, when all of us have those moments where we said, I wish I could have. Now, when you think about, you know, here you're young, this young guy in his 20s, you're building your third company. What can you share with the audience about things that you learned at that time uh, in your sort of business career as a young person that you would suggest that we do and also not do? What are some of the sort of insights that the listeners can take from you around this building way back in when you were 24 years of age? Well, I think one of them to do is, you know, I was very passionate and I was really intense. I understand still pretty intense. And the whole notion of work-life balance, I like the term better that's now being used, work-life integration. But at the time, I made very deliberate sacrifices because I was very focused on, on growing this company. It became a passion of mine and I loved what I was doing, but, it, you know, it was hard grit, you know, determination, hustle, you know, fighting through setbacks. I like to say entrepreneurship is a bit of a blood sport. You know, we, even the term entrepreneurship I don't like because it sounds like this fancy thing where you're sipping tea in white gloves. Um, real entrepreneurship is getting punched in the teeth and getting back up a lot. Mm-hmm. And so that was one thing that I learned I would, would recommend is, you know, really recognizing the, the hustle and, and grit that's needed to build something. One thing I learned now in retrospect, though, that I did poorly. Um, at the time, I, I was very closed as a leader. I was, I was not transparent, and it wasn't out of being uh, malicious. It was more of being paternalistic. I felt like, oh, I, I have to protect my people from bad stuff and shield them, and I'll take everything on myself, and, and I tried to insert myself all the time. I was more of like the give-me-the-ball kind of guy. And the problem with that is, first of all, it only scales so far. Second of all, you're really robbing your people of giving them the opportunity to shine. So fast forward to the leader that I am today. Uh, by the way, it's still a plenty of flaws, but um, I'm, I'm very open and transparent with the good and the bad. And my, my job as a leader is to help others score the touchdown, not just trying to take the ball for myself every time. So that, that was one thing I did poorly that, that uh, if I could go back and, and change, I would have. Mm. And so really equipping, but also engaging and including the other people that are on your team, maybe in a more involved way in some, in some format or another. Yeah. Before I almost looked at it, like, let's say I was the artist. And I would ask people to bring me different paints, but I felt like I had to put every piece of paint on the canvas. Now I look at it and I, I say to my team, like, hey, we all are the artists together. And we all can make some beautiful ad that would, would, would elevate the, the artwork or we could screw it up. And so it's, it's much more of a shared responsibility, a collective win or a collective loss. It isn't about just them supporting me. Mm, mm, for sure. For sure. So now you've sold this third company. The stock went up, the stock went down, you still came out okay. <laughs> you missed a bubble there. That, so uh, the regret one, I get that one too. We won't go into that story. So then what happened, Josh? Well, again, I'm very grateful because in 1999, this led to a real aha. And the aha was that at that time, everybody was focused on internet advertising. But if you look at the overall marketing mix, there's a category called promotion. That was a huge part of the marketing mix that was largely dormant online. And in my jazz musician way, I said, well, if everyone's focused on one thing, why don't I focus on the opposite thing? And so instead of launching the world's like 600th internet advertising company, I launched the world's first interactive promotion agency. And this was basically the intersection, sort of like half ad agency and half software company, where we built, designed, operated, managed, hosted uh, digital promotions. And these ranged from chance to win games, like instant win games where you could win 50 grand online instantly, uh, or it could be much more complex things, like we built the entire engine be- behind the My Coke Rewards uh, loyalty program. So we built these interactive promotions that were uh, really new and fresh, and, and when we would make sales calls, people wanted to take our call. 
And so that was the company was, was called E-Prize, E-P-R-I-Z-E. Started with a blank piece of paper, an idea, and we had a heck of a run. Uh, you know, grew, grew to uh, 500 plus people. We had offices uh, throughout the United States and one in London. We worked with 74 of the top 100 brands uh, and, and ultimately ended up selling that company in 2012. Now, when you think about going from zero to 500 staff, what did you learn in growing to that level? Oh, man. It was quite the ride. You know, it's funny. When you hear someone say that, you're like, wow, how glamorous. It must have been this beautiful straight line ride. Man, we got kicked in the teeth so many times. You know, for example, when I started the company, I was going to base my customers around – I was going after VentureBack.com companies that were going to take over the world. So my target audience was PetFood.com. Well, when the crash happened, there was no PetFood.com. So I had to target uh, professional big companies like Coca-Cola. And easier said than done. So we had to completely retool the company to go after large organizations. There was a point when we lost all of our funding and I had to scrabble around and I almost lost the business and it was like this desperate last minute attempt. And in the 11, not even the 11th hour, like there was, there was the day, I'll, I'll never forget it. So we lost our funding. This was like 2000, uh, 2000 maybe, early 2001, something like that. Anyway, we lost our funding. I just total straight out sprint to save the company. And no one wanted to fund a company with the letter E in front of it at this time. The, the stock market was terrible. It was really difficult times. And I, 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 I played every game I knew. I stretched vendors. But eventually, it was a Friday afternoon, and, and everyone's paycheck was about to be paid. So that was the day people's paychecks were due. And I was getting close to some new investors, but I hadn't finalized the deal. And I literally didn't know what was going to happen that day, if we were going to save the company or lose it. And I actually had a, 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 a meeting with the whole company scheduled previously for that day. And I honestly prepared two speeches that morning. One, what would I say if we saved the company? Second one, what would I say if we lost it? Mm -hmm. And I'm not exaggerating, 15 minutes before everybody's paycheck bounced and they padlocked our doors and our dreams were shattered, um, I got a wire transfer from the new investor. And I walked into that room and exhausted and sweating and, and told them that we'd saved the company. So the only reason I point all this out is that I think too often we look at these success stories and think it's just all glamorous. And then, and then if we're not feeling that unlimited, perfect success, we feel bad about ourselves. I think behind every good success story, there's a lot of, a lot of hardship and a lot of adversity. Uh, when wow. planes hit our building in 2001, it was awful. You know. So anyway, just thought that would be an important point. Well, you know, what would have, the what have, could have, of course, we're not going to go back to that. But 15 minutes from success or evaporation. What, did, what are some other emotions that you went through when you were that close? I mean, you name emotion, and emotion, I was feeling it. I was ashamed. I was desperate. I was uh, feeling, you know, the gamut from hopelessness to uh, I, I was just really very, very difficult. You know, I was frustrated. I was trying as hard as I could. I felt like I was going to be a failure. Um, but, but then I was optimistic because I saw the opportunity and I, I was getting close with this new investor. So it was a real tightrope walk. It was sort of like every emotion bottled up at once times 10. Mm. There's, I, I know as a host right at this moment, I think this is a, just an, an important concept for the listeners, Josh, of how close you came from not existing yet you pushed through to the other side and, um, you know, how can you, what would be something you could say to other individuals out there, maybe entrepreneurs or even leaders of companies that would be encouraging to them around this concept of, of just sticking to it until it's done? You know, there's these cheesy platitudes like never give up, don't quit, and blah, blah, blah. You know, I think that's, that's 
um, that's almost patronizing, and I don't think that, that celebrates people's real intensity. I, I think there's a, there's a phrase that I use a lot called find a way. And I think instead of us just thinking about, hey, let's just doggedly fight it out, I think it's more like being creative in the moment. We've got to find a way. And, and first of all, the implication of that simple phrase, find a way, is that there is a way. And then the second one is that it's our opportunity that we can actually find it, no matter who we are. I'm a kid from Detroit, Michigan. Like, I wasn't a Silicon Valley guy. I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't have all these country club contacts. But I just felt like there's got to be a way to find it, and I'm going to do it. And so it was more of a, of a deliberate hustle and a lot of pivoting and adapting and, and, and creativity in the, in, the near, in the real time, much more than just some romantic version, version of, you know, hustling it out. Mm. Well, congratulations on going through it. Then what happened now? You said you sold it in 2012. So then what happened in the next uh, decade with that company? Uh, that company's still alive today. Uh, it was actually sold again uh, to another company, and, and there's still hundreds of people employed at the company, and so they're, they're doing well. Um, but what I did is I went on to start a venture capital fund. I, I was very passionate. I've mentioned several times about the city of Detroit. And as you know, our city has been troubled. And so my partners and I had this crazy idea. We said, what if we started a venture capital fund? And we said, maybe we'll make some money, but more importantly, maybe we can make a difference. So we had this crazy mission of helping our city through investing, not in manufacturing, but in tech entrepreneurs. So we had this weird idea that if we could invest in these tech entrepreneurs, maybe we could create jobs and hope and change and help rebuild Detroit as a beacon of innovation. And by the way, people told us we're nuts. They're like, you can't do this in Detroit. Are you crazy? Go to Silicon Valley. Go to New York. So we did it anyway. And <laughs> we started the fund. We, we, we started pouring a bunch of money and passion into it and ended up really helping Detroit to, we still have a long way to go, but there's a, now today incredible momentum in our city. And I'm very proud to be a small piece of that. So Josh, when you think about, um, you know, being a leader of VC and then you're looking for opportunities, share with the audience, what are the qualities, characteristics, traits of people that you want to invest in? Not the business, but who these people are that causes you to, have hope to want to invest in them. What are you looking for in terms of the, the individual and the founders and the group? Funny. Well, first of all, there's an old question, you know, do you bet on the, the horse or the jockey? And the horse being the idea or the technology and the jockey being the team. And uh, I did a, almost an experiment that was timed perfectly. I invested $600,000 side by side in two companies. One had an A idea and a C team. The other one had a C idea and an A team. Here's what happened almost perfectly scripted. The A idea, the CT managed to screw it up. I lost everything, 100% of my money gone. The second one with a C idea but an A team, the A team managed to turn the C idea into an A idea. Today, they're one of our top performing uh, portfolio companies. So first of all, I would say, especially early on, it's so much about the people, in my experience. But in terms of characteristics, it actually is very different than you might think. You, you think that you're, you're looking for some you know, charismatic person who lights up the room with this giant vision. And it, it's, I actually find the opposite. In other words, I'm looking for somebody who's got, who, who demonstrates humility, demonstrates a willingness to course correct, someone who's got a, a smaller ego rather than a big one, someone who's willing to give credit to others, someone who has a proven uh, track record of execution, someone who's coachable. And so sometimes these are these more quiet, understated people that wouldn't, you wouldn't ordinarily think, wow, that's the next Steve Jobs. But those people actually tend to perform better in the messy world of startups. Mm. Anything else you do to sort of vet their characteristics or their qualities? Well, one thing I always like to do, and I would recommend this for anybody, is you think about high-performing fields. Like let's say it's 
uh, being a Broadway actor or being a sports, a professional sports person. How do they, what do they do? They audition. But in, in the business setting, <clears throat> what do we do? We interview people, which is the most ridiculous, fake, forced environment where you say to people like, well, tell me your biggest weakness. And they say, well, I work too hard. I mean, it's just this goofy thing. So how can you make a thoughtful hiring decision based on that? So what we do, first of all, is I, I get very clear on what we're looking for, which is generally more internal characteristics, cultural match, much more than just skill set. But number two, if, it's a, if you're investing in a company, I try to somehow create an audition. Just like you try out for a sports team or try out to make the symphony, what, what can we do to an audition? So maybe you give them a small project or an assignment, or you tell them something's really broken and I want to see how you think you're fixing it. And I find that that is a much better way to judge someone's uh, ultimate fit and, and, and giving them an audition much more than giving them an interview. Yeah, it is so true where, uh, you know, most people are not self-aware. That's our space, uh, Josh, what we teach and what we work on. And so most people don't even know that they don't know. And then if you're in an interview, who's going to, like, diss themselves? So it's not going to be as authentic or maybe they don't even know. So I appreciate this, you know, trial, uh, audition, um, test, whatever word you want to use with it. So now you've got this company, you sell it in 2012. What was on the horizon after that? I started the venture fund in 2010, so it was a little before I sold E-Prize. I ended up running the venture fund until 2014, got it off the ground, and ended up selling that to one of my uh, partners because I was just so passionate about human creativity. That's what I used to drive my jazz music, what really was the un a core ingredient in, in, in the uh, success that I had in the business world, and I wanted to share that with others. I have this inherent belief, and, and it turns out the research totally backs it up, and the belief is that all of us, and I mean all of us, have enormous reservoirs of human creativity. We are hardwired to be creative. That's our natural state, but so few of us use that, and what's happening is that today in a world of dizzying speed and exponential complexity and ruthless competition, as the world becomes automated and outsourced, how can we win? And it really gets back to, for all of us, if we can harness this, the superpower of, of human creativity. And the other thing that I realized is that too often we think of innovation, for example, as giant product breakthroughs, which means that it's only applicable to CEOs or lab coats wearing R&D folks or billionaires. But I said, what if all of us could be creative? What if someone who was, in, who was a customer service rep could be creative or a salesperson or a logistics manager in a factory? And so I started thinking about, is there a way to essentially elevate humanity in their ability to be creative. And so now, that I'm led me to write stop you for a second, Josh. And, Sorry to interrupt sure. you, Josh, but you said that, and I just want this for the listeners, you said that everybody has creativity. I suspect some people listening to this, as well, I don't have any, or, you know, Johnny doesn't have any. How, how do you respond to that where people kind of doubt that statement? Yeah, it's a real tragedy. And, and what happens is that uh, over time, we tend to grow out of, creativity instead of into it. And a lot of it is done through, through well-intentioned parents, I'm sure, and teachers. But, it, you know, the, the, these research studies are amazing. Like, they, they did a research project where they interviewed kindergartners and just asked them, are you creative? Well, what kindergartner isn't creative? 98-plus percent of those kids said, yeah, I'm creative. Then they asked the exact same question to graduating high school seniors, and the numbers dropped to 2%. And so the point is that, that all of us are creative, period. Now, we can be creative in different ways. So, for example, I play jazz music pretty well. I can't even draw a stick figure if I tried. So many of us feel because we're not great at some particular act of creativity, like if you're not good at painting on canvas, oh, you must not be creative. I put, my premise is that all of us can be creative in our own ways. 
You might be creative as an attorney or an accountant or a landscape architect. The point is that creativity doesn't have to only be some masterpiece. You can be creative uh, using inventive thinking and creative problem solving on a daily basis in the context of your career, your family, or even your community. And, and the research, again, is completely backs this up that all, I mean, again, all, just like all of us, unless you have some you know, significant brain issue, all of us have the ability to, to speak a language. Similarly, all of us have the ability to be creative. Now, I, I sort of have an anecdotal answer in my head or a research answer. Where do you think this creativity gets squashed from kindergarten to coming out of high school? What is contributing to that? Well, a, a number of things. Uh, first of all, our school systems, and teachers, by the way, are heroes. I'm not criticizing teachers, but, but our school systems are completely outdated for a different era. The school systems that most of us are in were designed for an era of uh, the, the goal being compliance. So you come out of school, you do what you're told, you, you follow the manual, you get a gold watch 30 years later after you retire from a company. But the problem is that world doesn't exist anymore. And so we're taught in school to follow the rules and guess what the teacher knows. And there's only one right answer. And whatever you do, don't make any mistakes. But unfortunately, that's a surefire path to mediocrity. In fact, doing the opposite is what's absolutely needed in almost every field. And so I think we have an outdated school system and, and well-intentioned, you know, fear-based parents and teachers and bosses say that, oh, it's too risky. But I, I would argue, respectfully, that the riskiest thing of all is to do nothing. The riskiest mm -hmm. thing of all is to cling to the status quo. And I'll just give you a quick personal anecdote. When I started my, zooming back, when I started my first company at age 20, again, I had no idea what I was doing. I'd never taken a business class. I had an idea. And I did have a, a bit of a mentor at the time. And I went to him and respectfully requested a $1,000 loan to start this company. So he asked me to build a business plan. I didn't even know what a business plan was. But I went to the library, I figured it out, I, I made this elaborate business plan, I went to Kinko's and printed it out, there was no email back then, and sent it off and, and waited for, for praise and admiration. But instead what I heard is the following, that's a terrible idea, that'll never work. What the hell do you know about running a business? You're going to fail. And the problem is that that was not only crushing, but that person was not only my mentor, but he was my dad. And so now I just heard this, you know, poisonous thing from the person who I looked up to the most. And, and I ended up saying, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And thank God I did. But, but think about how many times that, that that happens to people in life. And we just teach ourselves, we, we, we internalize that and say, oh, well, I should just never try anything new again. I should never be creative. And so, by the way, my dad was trying to protect me. He wasn't a bad person. Maybe mm -hmm. he didn't express it well, but he was, he was looking after me and he thought I was going to fail and he was trying to look out for me. So, so I think that a lot of times it's well-intentioned people in our lives dissuade us of being creative rather than elevate us into our true gift of creativity. Oh, for sure. Well, you know, my story and the whistler, and listeners have heard this a hundred times, Josh, is that my grade nine English teacher said I would never amount to anything because I couldn't read or write. And of course, back then, uh, learning disabilities weren't part of it. And then the invention of the computer, thank you for building one of those for me, Josh, is <laughs> I was now able to write a little program called Word, showed me these red, little red lines, and all of a sudden, here I am, I've written three books and four million words of content and psychological assessments and tools, but no way could you have convinced me that was even possible in my 20s because I'm not a writer according to my English teacher. So uh, when you think about what you, your dad had said and overcoming that, and he said, well, this business plan is not going to work. How, what happened there? What was the tipping point to go do it anyways? Well, I'm just very grateful that I was trained in jazz because in jazz, you just figure stuff out. You, you find a way. And also, what it's funny, creative competence, uh, I believe, is different than most people think. Creative competence isn't thinking you're going to do something perfectly. 
Creative confidence is knowing that you're going to figure out how to course correct. So when I go play jazz, it's not, I don't, I'm not confident that I'm going to walk out there and, and crush it. I'm, I'm confident, in fact, that I'm going to walk out there and screw something up. But the confidence becomes from knowing that once you screw something up, you'll figure out how to course correct. And, and that's, that was my confidence when my dad told me that. I said, you know what? You're probably right. I'm probably going to screw up a lot of things, which I did, by the way. But I said, I'm going to figure out how to, how to course correct. And, uh, and that, that's ultimately what, what carried the day. By the way, funny thing in jazz, if you go out there and play a terrible note, you just play it twice more and call it art. Everything's good. <laughs> One of my friends is in the jazz, and he's created sort of a jazz event for teaching leadership and uh, love it. So you two, we need to connect you two. I'll, I'll do that offline. So now, uh, Josh, you are an expert, an expert, but you're communicating this encouragement to others around creativity and innovation to individuals in the corporate world. Uh, you've written, I believe, I think it's three books that I have listed down here, you know, Discipline, Dreaming, Road to Reinvention, Hacking Innovation. Uh, what are some of the, what's are some of the content points in those books that you're teaching now that the listeners could embrace? One, one core, which you already covered, is that, that everybody is, can be a creative force. Everybody can be an artist. Again, in their, own, in their own way. You know, if you work in a hotel, you can be an artist in, in the context of that role. It doesn't have to be uh, what we typically think is being an inventor in a laboratory somewhere. Uh, the second thing is that there are some core mindsets that if we develop these mindsets, and there's also some core skill sets, that if we develop these skill sets, um, we can demystify the creative process. It's funny, if you see, like, back to jazz, if you see someone play this incredible jazz solo, you say, gosh, they must have plugged their instrument like right into their heart, which is connected to God, and like, it's just amazing creativity. Truth is that there are some systems and approaches and tools and techniques that those folks learn that make it seem easy. So when you see someone doing some elaborate creative act, it's probably not just because they're a super smart, talented person. It was a learned skill. It's just like you can learn to put spin on the ball when you're playing tennis. And so I try to demystify the creative process, arm people with specific tools and techniques and mindsets such that they can go and take them back and put them into use in the months and years to come. And that's what I'm so passionate about today. I'm speaking today in L.A., and tomorrow in Miami, on that, that exact same topic. How can all of us become artists? So we have about 10 minutes left, Josh. What can you share with the audience around mindset and skills that they can consider going forward to be embrace this innovation in this discipline dreaming that you talk about? Well, today, for example, I'm going to talk about five core mindsets that, of, of innovations that all of us can embrace. You don't need to be wearing a hoodie and starting a mobile app company. All of us, no matter your career or, or role, can embrace. And I'll quickly share them, what I'm going to share today. Uh, the first one is, I mentioned earlier, this notion of find a way, which is essentially that there's got to be a way to crack every code and then taking personal responsibility to figure it out and find that way. The second one is, I call it upgrade it, which is the notion that we should always be in this constant state of reinvention. For example, I try to put the Josh of six months ago out of business with a new version. In my hometown of Detroit, every year when a new car comes out, they put the old version out of business with a newer model year. And I mm. think all of us should be thinking about that, not well, only personally, think, but think even about in your our iPhone, same thing, you're, you're in L.A., so you're close by, right? So. Right, exactly, exactly. So, so the notion is, if you've been doing the same thing, maybe it's a system or an approach, or maybe the way you call your customers, the way you send a report or interview a job candidate, what would the upgraded version look like? How could you make that upgraded with, with the context of current stuff uh, applied? The, the third, third mindset that I like to talk about is defying traditions. And traditions are great. I mean, nothing wrong with family traditions, 
But traditions in business, when we, when we rely on them blindly, can be an absolute trap. And, and one thing that I've learned now in, in almost 30 years in business is that too often we overestimate the risk of trying something new, but we underestimate the risk of standing still. And so defining traditions, I think, is an important mindset. So explain that, that just a little bit more for me, Josh, around defined traditions, meaning figure them out, what's kind of locked in the place that you've been protecting, or what does that exactly mean? Yeah, the, yeah defying, not defining. So defying. And mm-hmm. so what would a defiant approach of that tradition look like? In other words, if you said, I'm going to shatter this tradition what, and start anew, what would that look like? And so it's sort of forcing yourself to reinvent and, and, and change as you go confronting the old way of doing something. You know, so often I hear people say, hey, that's just the way we do it in our company. Or, hey, just that, that's the way it's done in our field. And to me, those are fighting words. You know, that, that, that gets you nowhere quickly because the world around us is changing at an unprecedented rate. So it's around mm. exploring traditions, confronting them, and defying them. Mm. Okay, great. Thank you for that. Number four. Yeah, number four is around seeking the unexpected. Very often when we're facing a problem or trying to seize an opportunity, we gravitate to the obvious. And my suggestion is to push ourselves a bit to say, what's the weird alternative? What's the, what's the wacky one? What's the unorthodox or, or, or bizarre even approach? And those unexpected approaches are the ones that make history. And, and I believe that all of us have this huge list of unexpected ideas inside of us. We generally don't share them because we're afraid. And if we can remove the fear, we can tap into this reservoir of these unexpected oddball ideas those are the ones that make all the difference in the world. Mm, mm, and then sure. the final one is, is a principle around bouncing back. And the notion is that we're going to get knocked down. We're going to face adversity. So some of the stories I share with my companies were, were exactly that. But it's, it's not just bouncing back in a, in a stupid way. It's not like bang your head against the wall just again and again and again. It's more about bouncing back with more creativity. So as you get knocked down and you're on the canvas, which we all are at some point, how do you come back with more creative approaches? How do you come back with a more imaginative angle in order to, to not end up on the canvas again? So it's the intersection of, of persistence with creativity, bouncing back. And, and by the way, those are mindsets, all those five that, that all of us can embrace. If you're a kindergartner teacher, great. If, you're, if you are own a roofing company, great. So all of us can embrace these. You don't have to be some tech genius. You don't have to be Mark Zuckerberg to embrace these. These are portable. They apply to us all. Well, even if somebody's listening and you're applying for a job and you got uh, rejected for that job or you weren't hired or didn't get an interview, then what can you do differently to be more attractive the next time around? Now, we're down to about five minutes, Josh, so thank you for sharing that. But before we get into sort of your closing words and comments, how can people find out about you in uh, more of some of the work that you're doing? And if there's a corporate person who's listening, I can uh, endorse you, Josh, as an amazing keynote presenter that... Uh, many organizations that would like to uh, investigate further, but how could they find out more about you? Well, thank you so much. And, and, and to reiterate, I'm, I'm really just passionate about helping people and, and organizations bring more creativity to the surface. Even a 5% boost in creative, in creative capacity can, can change the landscape of a company or a career. Um, so they can find out more about me at my website, joshlinkner.com. That's J-O-S-H-L-I-N-K-N-E-R.com. And that's my handle on all social channels as well. Mm. So you've got all these other books and everything, and you've covered a lot of information for our listeners today. So thank you, Josh, for that. But what would you, what are maybe two or three final pieces of wisdom beyond what you've already shared 
to encourage the audience to go to the next level today? Well, one of them is, is uh, pursue, I go after the small, not the big, which I know seems totally counterintuitive, but, but if, if, if we are trying something new and the first thing you do is you swing for the fences, you know, that, that's a hard proposition. And yeah, every now and then someone gets lucky, but that, that's usually not the best approach. My suggestion, whether you're trying to build creative capacity or trying to build your company or build your family, is look at it as lots of small, little deliberate acts. Uh, on creativity, for example, if someone wants to get really creative and find some giant breakthrough, I wouldn't even say aim for that giant breakthrough. Instead, I would say aim for uh, 30 days straight of small creative acts. And for example, like one could be the simplest thing. Maybe you put your pepperoni when you order your pizza, ask them to put it under the cheese instead of on top of the cheese. But yeah, that was an act of creativity. But if you get into the habit of creative approaches, the habit of, uh, of doing stuff again and again and again, that consistency, to me, that's what really drives better outcomes. And that can be applied certainly to creativity, but, but to other, other disciplines as well. Is do the, the, the day in and day, small things, those are the ones that lead up to big results. Awesome. Anything else, Josh, for us today? Um, I would just encourage us, you know, back on the notion of reinvention, that you know, success, and, and I'm, I'm, so, I'm sure that many listeners have, have achieved, achieved great success. And success is awesome, nothing wrong with that, but, but it can lure smart people into thinking that they don't need to change. And uh, I've seen cases like this many times where people were, were wildly successful until they weren't because the world isn't slowing down in terms of the rate of change, quite the opposite. And so my encouragement with, with great respect is that uh, we, should, we should constantly be looking at how we can adapt and change to the, to the new circumstances. Uh, it's funny. I used to play the game Frogger when I was a kid in the 80s. And, uh, that, <laughs> You're dating me too, Josh. You know, I know that one. Yes. Yeah, if, if, you have, if you've ever seen it, if you're basically a little frog, and it's a video game where you're trying to get across the river. And, but you can't swim, so the only way you can do it is jump onto hard surfaces that are floating in the river, like the back of a turtle or the back of a log or a lily pad. problem is those things are moving, and they keep moving at a faster and faster pace. And I think we're living in a three-dimensional game of Frogger right now. And the trick is you leap forward, and you've got some success. You're on the back of a log. You're safe. But if all you do is stand still, you fall into the river and die. So I think our job, regardless of, of our chosen profession, is that you've got to leap from one point of success to the next to the next. You basically have to be that, that little frogger jumping from one solid surface to the next one at an increasingly fast pace. So using your success as a platform to leap to the next one rather than resting on your morals. Mm. Well, Josh, thanks for uh, spending the time. Stay with us here, but thanks for uh, joining us today and hanging out with the Secrets of Success uh, listeners. Hey, you know, thank you. And, and before we end, just a big note of gratitude for you. You're doing amazing things. You're sharing incredibly powerful messages with the world. This is obviously an act of, 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 of love and, 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 and giving. And I just think we all need to celebrate you and, and, and provide a tremendous amount of gratitude for the, the great work that you're doing and the, power, and the powerful messages that you're sharing with your listener base. Well, much appreciated, Joss. And coming from you, that is meaningful. And as we said earlier, uh, these things are important. So thank you for that. Well, uh, Secrets of Success listeners, you've been uh, listening to Josh, and we'll have all his contact information in the show notes. But my encouragement is that you would shift your mindset, that you there is a way to do it, that you can find a way, that you can uh, look at upgrading some certain things. You can uh, define traditions and maybe even kind of throw some of them out or say, where is it going? Uh, and seek some unexpected possibilities. And then the other one is, is that, you know, everyone talks about getting up when you get down. So we bounce back. Is that The other option is, is that you don't do that at, at all. So take some of the things that Josh has said, apply it to your life, go to the next level, contribute. 
Thank you as always for being a listener. If you like what we're doing, please share it, pass it on, leave a positive comment on any platform you are listening or participating in. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.